grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What in the Sam Hill is going on around here? An author by the name of Annie Dillard says this is the theological question, the most important question, the question that overshadows everything else that we might ask, any other questions that we might have about God or the universe. This is the most important one, she says. What in the Sam Hill is going on around here? Which is another way of saying, why is this world so broken? Why, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? And why in our own lives do we suffer so much? This is the question to ask. It's implied in our gospel today as some people come to Jesus with an instance of evil, wanting to give some accounting for it, underlying them coming to him is precisely this question. Why? 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 How can God bear with the suffering of the world? But of course, to ask that question brings us right full in the face to this great and gravest challenge to our faith. It's often called the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. And we can put it real simply and put it in kind of logical form. If there were an all-loving and all-powerful God, suffering would not exist. Suffering does exist. Ergo, God does not exist. Now that's oversimplifying, but that's basically the gist of the argument, of the challenge to our faith, the problem of suffering. If God really were all-loving and all-powerful, he wouldn't allow this to happen. He would do something about it. But as it is, everywhere we look, suffering is all around us. So where is God? Today, with fear and trembling, I want to put God on trial. And think of it in this way. Does God, does the existence of suffering in the world and in our lives, does it disprove the existence of God? I want us to balance the evidence both for and against this claim so that we might come through with a, a fuller understanding and appreciation for what God's word teaches, not to just dismiss this as though it weren't a big deal, as if it weren't a real challenge and problem to our faith. It is. It's important for us to wrestle with it so we might come out on the other side with a deeper wonder at the reality and the love of our Lord. But let's start with the prosecution's evidence, with those who would say that the suffering that's in the world disproves the existence of God. And look, friends, you don't need me to tell you that there is no shortage of evidence out there, is there? I mean, all you have to do is look at the world's headlines. We see it all over the place. It was from the headlines that these um, Jews came to the Lord Jesus with this question or this challenge. Ripped from their own headlines was this story. The historical evidence or um, uh, testimony that we have to it is scant, but we can gather the basic details. What had happened was some pious Jewish pilgrims had gone to Jerusalem 
to offer sacrifices at the temple, at God's house. And Pilate, for whatever reason, sent some troops in order to massacre them. But then, in order to add insult to injury, he mingles the blood of their animal sacrifices that they were making with the blood of those who were slain, just as a way to poke them in the eye with this act of the the most kind of heinous sacrilege that you can imagine. And so they come to Jesus, these people come to Jesus with this news ripped from the headlines saying, how could this happen? Right under God's nose, right? Here at his house, in his temple. These were faithful, pious people doing what God commanded, weren't they? So how could God allow this to happen? Why this suffering? And look, in our own day, it's not hard for us to rip from the headlines as well. Whether it be a shooting in New Zealand or in any number of places in the world, whether it be flooding in the Plains states, or whether it simply be the unremarked, overlooked suffering that you endure in your life. Where is God in that? Can he do anything about it? And if he can, why doesn't he? Look, the case against the Lord on this score is powerful and persuasive. And we dismiss it to our peril. We need to reckon with it and wrestle with it. So how does Jesus answer the challenge? These people come to him with this news. How does he respond to this challenge? Does he let in with an eloquent abstract, persuasive argument for why there's suffering in the world and and why God is, in fact, just? Or does he instead point out that these people were, in fact, worse sinners and they had done this one thing wrong and so this is why it happened? No. He doesn't follow either of those tacks. Instead, he turns the tables. He won't even entertain that question or that challenge. Instead, he points it right back to the people who brought it to him. Do you think that they were worse sinners? Hmm? I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. We were coming to you in order for you to answer this question. And Jesus says, the Father is not going to be put on trial here. In fact, he even ups the ante. He says, or what about that tower in Siloam that fell down and killed the 18 people? Were they worse sinners than the rest? No, I tell you, Jesus says. Unless you likewise repent, you will all likewise perish. Look, this is a hard word from our Lord. And in fact, it calls into question the very notion that I started out with, that we should or could put God on trial, ask him to answer to us. Jesus says, no, 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 not so fast. God doesn't answer to you. You answer to God. Friends, this is a hard word for us to hear, but we need to hear it. There is a temptation for us to think when we look out at the suffering and the the grave evil in the world or in our lives to think that we are simply innocent bystanders and God, you better reckon with this. You and I are not innocent bystanders to the wreck of the world. 
We are willing accomplices. You and I and everyone else in the world who is an heir of that first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are guilty too. We ourselves have sinned and we are complicit in the evil of our world and its brokenness. We are not in a position to come to God and say, God, you need to answer this for us. Who are we to think that we could understand his will, his working and his ways? He tells us as much that these are beyond our knowing. It's beyond our ken in order to make sense of who he is and what he is up to in the world in the midst of these things that we cannot understand. Many years ago in uh, Great Britain, in the newspaper in London, the newspaper says, in between the world wars, and the world was just looking like a wreck. And the newspaper editors posed this question to its readers, what is wrong with the world? People wrote in with all sorts of different explanations. It's God's fault, it's the world's fault, it's everybody's fault. But maybe the most persuasive response of all came from a a Christian apologist and writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote in with a two-word response. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote, I am. I would submit to you that unless we can look in the mirror, look at ourselves and answer like Chesterton did, we are not in any place to countenance this question and this challenge. We have to start with repentance, owning and recognizing that the sin that exists in the world that has caused this fissure between God and creation It exists in our hearts, too. We are guilty as well, and we need to repent. So I think this is one refutation that we would give. Maybe it's a shallow comfort to say, well, we'll refute those arguments against God's existence by saying we're the guilty ones. But that's where we need to start, see by recognizing the sin and brokenness in the world which exists in our own heart. But is there also a a positive case to be made that confirms God's existence in the face of suffering? Lord, there's a lot that could be said. I can't answer it all in, in a sermon. But let me give you one thought. A few years ago, I had a toothache. And it got worse, and it got worse. And like a good man, I assumed that if I just ignored it long enough, it would go away. Strangely enough, that didn't happen. And so finally, I had to go into the dentist, and he gives me that horrible news, you need a root canal. It's okay. I'm still standing. I survived. You ever have a toothache like that? A tooth is a small thing. You hold it in your hands and you think, how could such a small thing cause such awful, horrible pain? And if you've had a toothache like that, you know that when that happens, nothing else in the world matters, right? You ignore everything and everyone else. You know, there's, there's fires, there's wars and rumors of wars. Your own house is burning down. You think, don't you realize I've got a toothache? This is awful. Why don't you feel compassion for me? This is an example of what psychologists call attention blindness. And attention blindness is when you are so focused and fixated on one detail 
on one little piece of evidence that you completely neglect and ignore everything else out there. So when you have that awful toothache and it hurts so bad, what do you not notice? I don't know, the fact that your heart is still strong and working, the fact that you're still breathing and standing upright, the fact that overall you are in good health with, other than this one awful toothache. In other words, we ignore and neglect all of that other evidence that is out there because our eyes become so focused and fixated on just this one little thing. So, what does that have to do with the problem of suffering? Look, the suffering and pain in the world and in our lives is real. I don't want to make light of it for a moment. It's like that toothache, though. And we become so focused just on that that we lose sight of all the things that are right with the world. All the goodness and beauty and wonder that still exists in God's creation, in spite of everything else, we lose sight of the fact that life in this world is a joy and a blessing, even in the midst of and in spite of all the ways that it goes sideways. Or we might put it like this. Think of it like this. Just go along with the, the atheist argument, okay? There is no God. It's all just materialism all the way down. You know, might makes right, survival, survival of the fittest, etc., etc. If that were the case, how would we account for the goodness in the world? Look, as Christians, with an understanding of sin and the effects of sin in the world, we can account for all the ways that the world has gone wrong. But apart from God, how could you account for all the ways that the world has gone right? We might call it the problem of good. <laughs> and for all that, just imagine if God himself were not stemming the tide of sin in our world. Things are ugly out there, don't get me wrong. But I want you to try and think, to imagine how ugly it would be if God and his mercy were truly giving us what we deserve. If sin was allowed to have its full course in the world. It's a terrifying thought. Indeed, it's hell itself. But the fact is, we have a Lord who is kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked, who does not repay to you and me as our sins deserve. So that even in the midst of this suffering and evil, we can say, God, Thank you for not giving us what we truly have merited. But look, maybe you're still not persuaded. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor, these are some interesting good arguments that you have given uh, against this question, the problem of suffering, but ultimately it's not just an academic exercise. It's not simply a matter of having you know, good arguments or, or fine logical argumentation. It's much more personal than that. And I would say that you're right. That we have a personal God. And we desire, understandably and rightly, a personal answer to the suffering that's in the world. How does God bear all the suffering in the world? Well, my response would simply be this. He did. He did. The Son of God 
did bear all the suffering in the world on his frail shoulders. Christ himself allowed himself to be crushed by the tower of our sin that brought him down unto death. Jesus perished for your sin and mine so that you might not perish eternally. He suffered in your place so that whatever suffering you endure would be restricted to this life. So that in the age to come, you would be reunited with your Savior in the time and the place where suffering is done away with for good. And look, in the midst of this life, we still deal with all manner of evil, with all sorts of problems and sufferings. And hear me when I say, we can't make this nice, clean connection. I did this wrong and now God is punishing me. No, Christ took your suffering onto himself. We live in a world that is racked with sin. We suffer its effects in this life. But a day is coming, perhaps today, when Christ Jesus will come again. And on that day, he is going to recreate this broken, fallen world. When he is going to raise all the dead. And our Lord will stoop down and answer every question that we will have. And in the face of all of that suffering and all of that evil, in the presence of our Lord, it will all simply wash away. And our Lord himself will stoop down to each and every one of you. And he will wipe every tear from your eyes. All that you have endured, all the sorrow and suffering that you have been through is not for nothing. And it is not lost on your Savior. So we will say to him at the last, Righteous are your ways and just are your works, O Lord. And the Lord will say then, as he says now, I rest my case. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.